Welcome to Small Pleasures, the podcast that discusses great short stories and greatness in the short story form. My name is Livy Michael and I am a novelist and short story writer from Manchester, England, and this is Sonia Moore, a short story writer and translator from Paris, France. Bienvenue. We've come together because of a mutual enthusiasm for the short story, although I think our responses and what we want from a short story vary, and we hope that the differences will provide a fruitful discussion. This month, we're discussing a short story by Daniel Mason, Death of the Pugilist, or The Famous Battle of Jacob Burke and Blind Man McGraw, which is the first story in the collection, A Registry of My Passage Upon the Earth, published in London in 2020 by Mantle, an imprint of Pan Macmillan. Livy, do you want to kick off this discussion by saying what made this collection special for you? Firstly, I'd like to say this is an unusual collection, partly because there really aren't that many collections of historical short stories. I can think of a couple of others, Servants of the Map by Andrea Barrett and Susanna Clarke's The Ladies of Grace Adieu, for instance. But the stories in Clarke's collection are set in Clarke's very own fantastic take on the 18th century, substantially in fairy. And like George R.R. R. Martin, another writer who blends fantasy and history, he said that they are sisters under the skin. Whereas the short stories in Mason's collection are diverse, ranging from South America to the Indian Ocean, France, England and the USA, from ancient Egypt to the 20th century. They refer to people and events that have actually happened, but the narrative and stylistic approach to these historical events is wide-ranging and formally experimental. So what we have is a really varied collection in terms of subject matter, setting, theme, language and style. I will just say, as someone who's written historical fiction, that this is impressive in itself. Historical fiction lends itself to huge epics, partly because the creation of a convincing context for a character or event can take up space and involves a considerable amount of research. I find this point really interesting because I've never thought of historical fiction this way. Uh, I tend to see the historical setting as another place the short story can go, not in relation to the epic. When working with historical settings, while the research is really heavy, I find that the rest of my short story toolkit remains the same. So I'm not looking for epic, but in terms of character and revealing moments, moments of meaning for that character, me, others, not so much the great sweep of history, but the specific, what stands out in that person's life. And this will often be small stuff, say a person receiving a broken gift or an opportunity to steal some small thing without anyone noticing, whatever. A choice that in some way reveals who that person is and what they want. Even big deal moments seem to come from an accumulation of smaller words and deeds, or sometimes through things not said and done. And this is one of the reasons I love short fiction. It lets you peer through a crack in the door at seemingly inconsequential moments. And when your eyes adjust, you realize you're looking into a cave or a cathedral at something huge. Great analogy. I checked out uh, Mason's take on historical fiction, and I was interested to see in an interview with The Atlantic that his interest is not so much in reproducing an historical event and more about using a different time and place to explore something pressing. He uses history to understand something in his life today. This is perhaps a universal quality of stories wherever they're set. They help us make sense of things. 
I think this is true and a really interesting point. In fact, some people think of historical fiction as a contradiction in terms because we can only write about our own contemporary world. Our consciousness is inescapably contemporary. However, this is why historical novelists research so much to create the illusion of historical context. I have a friend who set one of her books in 19th century England, and I remember her saying that she understood why historical novelists pick one era and stay with it, because the amount of research involved is formidable. Yet here we have a single, fairly slim volume containing several significant moments in the history of the human race. I wish I'd known about this collection when I was teaching historical fiction, but to be fair, it hadn't been written then. Didn't you include it in an article you wrote for a website on historical fiction? I did, yes. I had to select my favourite books that dealt with real people from history, which is a particular challenge, I think, because the story already exists and you have to stick to the facts while making it new for the reader. And Daniel Mason, who's a physician and psychiatrist by profession and the author of three historical novels, rises to this challenge wonderfully in this collection, which contains nine excellent stories. So excellent, in fact, that we had trouble selecting one of them. So in the end, we chose the first story, Death of the Pugilists or the famous Battle of Jacob Burke and Blindman McGraw, and we hope our discussion will demonstrate why. Sonia, can you describe the story? What is it actually about? Well, simply put, it tells the story of a boxing match that took place in 1824. Uh, it introduces the opponents and sets out how the match came about and gives a blow-for-blow -blow account of the match itself. It's remarkable in terms of action, also character and setting. Yeah, and that's a great quote you found by Mason, that his interest is not so much in reproducing a historical event, but more about using a different time and place to explore something pressing. He uses history to understand something in his life today. What do you think those pressing issues are as featured in this story? Well, Mason talks about pressing issues in the context of answers he might be looking for in his own life. So I wouldn't want to speculate on that. He does mention using story to think about what it means to be a person in this world. That's something a lot of people relate to, I think. Yeah, I was thinking in terms of contemporary issues, how does the story speak to the issues of today? I guess we could see a link to contemporary social, economic or political issues. But I think the story speaks to me in more psychological or philosophical terms. It helps explore questions that are for me pressing such as, um, I don't know, how do we go about becoming ourselves? Is there a relation between liking a thing and being good at that thing? What do we do with fear? What is victory? What is success? What do we do with animalistic drives? What if anything is noble about being a human? The story of Burke and Blyman has the same pull for me as stories of uh, Francis Ngannou or Muhammad Ali. It seems to offer life lessons for our time, though the narrative style takes us to another time and place. Those are great questions and the narrative style is interesting. I find it a very flexible voice and the chapter headings suggest a running commentary. Yet by the end, I think that commentary turns into something else and the shift is important for the issue that I think is a main theme, but we'll come back to that. The headings remind me of earlier English texts such as The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, which was written in 1678 where you have chapters such as Christian's Deplorable Condition or The Pit of Fear and Doubt, or Vanity Fair by Thackeray, written in 1848, with chapter headings such as In Which Miss Sharp and Miss Sedley Prepare to Open the Campaign. 
These headings seem to present a summary of the action in the chapter by a third person observer who is not necessarily disinterested, but also not directly involved. I don't find them in earlier American fiction, such as The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, written in 1850, or Moby Dick, 1851, although this is hardly a comprehensive survey. It's wonderful that you have this wealth of literary references, and it's wonderful to see Mason's work in relation to these literary references. I got something a bit different from the headings, more like a journalistic feel or a chat in a bar. They often seem to mimic questions like uh, who, what, where, when, why, how, and they, they seem to anticipate my desires as a reader, signposting where I'd find what I wanted to know. I got a commentary feel too, but not from the headings. I felt this more in the narration, in the thick of the fight. Anyone interested by inter-artistic creations might be interested to know that a performance was created by Min Si Wu in 2008, combining a hybrid musical composition and the narration of Death of the Pugilist. And the narration was performed by a sports commentator, I think. So Min Si Wu seems to have picked up on this particular music in the text too, this commentator voice. Great point. I can certainly see that. And I think the headings do help to move the story along. It's a long, short story, but to get back to my earlier point, nowhere near as long as the average historical novel. Yet it seems to me that we get a vivid and complete picture of a moment in time. How do you think Mason manages that? It might be a clever balancing act between geographical and historical accuracy, reader expectations and the needs of the story. I noticed a lot of restraint of what might be called props are kept relevant to the story and the plot not dropped in artificially to show off research. And comparing the two published versions of the stories in Harper's and in Mason's collection, you see that what was a lice comb, for example, becomes a comb and what was a brougham becomes a carriage. So the props favoured are those that can be immediately visualised and don't distract from the narrative. I'm not sure how important historical accuracy was. There's a Steve Dawes song, for example, that seems to have been invented for the story, or at least later adapted to better suit the needs of the story. The main aim seems to be to create a believable impression of England in the 1800s for target readers. So I guess primarily a North American readership. You point out that it's not just about creating a moment in time, but also a vivid one. And Mason's language is perhaps important here. How would you describe it? I would describe Mason's approach to language as dense, consonantal, containing a lot of ideas. Um, it summarizes a span of time and conveys a sense of toughness and violence. Tough sensory prose, really good on rhythm and punctuation, and the metaphors are very concrete. So Sam Jones was an old man of 40 when one morning his foot punched a rotted board on the dock and he went down. It's, quite a long sentence because it goes on, but using short monosyllabic and Anglo-Saxon words, fighting metaphors, it actually conveys a good deal about that world. On the first page, we have another long sentence that contains a very short novel, thick neck, thick shouldered, and the sentence after that, very compressed style. The clause, Jacob was the 12th of 18 children, third of the surviving eight, tells us almost everything we need to know about his background. Aristotle wrote in his Poetics, to be a master of metaphor is the greatest thing by far. It's the one thing that cannot be learnt from others, and it's also a sign of genius. 
And I think one of the purposes of metaphor is to make the abstract concrete, shall I compare thee to a summer's day, um, is actually a poem about time or mortality using tangible images. And here Mason makes full use of the concrete lapidary metaphor until his back broadened and his forearms broke his cuffs. The description of his opponent actually makes him sound like a monster carved in stone. It looks as if someone has taken a massive sculpture of a strong man and kept throwing lumps of clay at it. So his language is very grounded in things, which reminds me of that quote from William Carlos Williams, who said, no ideas but in things. And though the sentences are long, they're not complex in the sense of having many subordinate clauses, but compound and additive. A lot of ideas in them, but they're not really abstract. And a great mix of registers, archaic language, criminal camp, scientific language, biblical, technical, and to do with fighting. This language is really dense and carefully wrought. I wonder how many drafts of this story had to do. This is such an important craft question, I think. People often believe that a short story being short can be written quickly, but an exceptional short story often takes years to craft. Death of the Pugilist was published in 2007, I think then included in this collection, published in 2020. And there are significant changes between the two versions. I don't know if these came from Daniel Mason or an editor, but it's safe to bet that the story took very careful crafting. For anyone interested in improving their craft, I'd encourage them to go through the two versions line by line, identifying differences. Because edits are thrilling and illuminating. The people at the beginning of their writing journey might note the many changes made to the name of the protagonist, for example. These vary a lot in the first published version, and more systematic nomenclature is imposed on the second version, so it's clearer who's who. And there are edits made to better situate the story, changing checkers to drafts, for example. There are huge craft lessons to be learned from the comparison. The exercise is completely fascinating. Amazing. I will definitely look that up. And I remember reading somewhere that Alice Munro said a short story did not take less time to write than a novel. And that's certainly been my experience of them. It's not about the word count, but achieving the right effect. But to go back to one of the features of Mason's style, one of the pitfalls of the historical novel is that it can over-explain because essentially you're presenting an alien world to the reader. But here Mason makes no concessions by way of explanation. Also, often we're invited to judge. So in the opening pages of a C.J. Sansom novel set in Tudor, England, we have an execution and the reader is invited to be shocked but also the protagonist is too sensitive to participate. So in that case, the protagonist has a more modern sensibility than the rest of the society in which he lives. But here we have none of that. Burke seems very much to be a man of a particular time and place in society. Would you agree? I certainly found the setting coherent and believable enough. I'm, I'm no historian and I haven't researched the 1800s, so I can't judge for accuracy. I think what mattered most to me was that the protagonist, uh, Burke, appealed as a character. He felt quite contemporary in some ways. I saw a comparison with the film Rocky in terms of characterization and structure. In each, there's a really long build to introduce a working class main character and their backstory, with this long build helping to give the climax impact. And I often see such similarities between film and the short story and poetry in the short story. Films are great for learning about structure and how to build tension. That's something Mason does brilliantly in this story. Um, 
I think what I mean by my point is that the reader is not invited to look down on the activity of bare knuckle fighting as something from the primitive past, but to become involved and included in the action. Mm. Um, And as you say, the tension in this story really builds. And I think that's partly achieved because the story is very focused. It's one fight and the build up to it. And in the build up, we get Jacob's fear. And we're told that he can't get out at one point, even if he wanted to. There's a reference to the gallows as if he's been escorted to his execution. And it's clear that the crowd want blood. And that also, at one point, we realise that he's been set up to fail. And there are constant references to death. Someone's described as a Methuselah of 35. Simon Beale is a character who's dead at 25. So we're reminded about how that mortality is kind of built into that society. And then when you get to section nine, the focus increases as the pace slows down, and yet the sentences are shorter. The language changes again in section 12, back to the scratch and muscular down, jab to the nose and blind man down. See, it's it's incredibly skillful control of focus and tension throughout. Is, is there a point at which individual consciousness breaks down? As on page 25, the hillside roars. And at one point, the, fight, the gap between Burke and the narrator disappears. And Burke can no longer think, he can only move. There's a lot of beauty there, isn't there? It's a, a different, time moves very differently in that moment. Um, and, and I agree that tension is, is yeah, really masterfully worked by Mason in this story. I, I got that he was working the rule of three a lot as well. If, if something occurs three times, we tend to see it as meaningful. And Mason drops three times into the storyline that recurs to the protagonist. And this reoccurs each time in a slightly altered form as Burke attempts to find his truth and his meaning. So we see this twice, three times. And when we meet the line the last time, it kind of detonates. Um, And Mason stacks the odds against the winner with a roughly one to three ratio of four. So the final result seems possible, but not likely. And he builds anticipation by working patterns of contraction and release. You can see it at work when the protagonist lids a lance to relieve pressure or between scenes, alternating high tension and moments that take a step back, like the philosophical chat with the ex-priest or the flashback to childhood. I seem to remember Edgar Allan Poe saying something about the importance of building towards a sense of inevitability. And Mason works this too. Everything in the story builds towards ending. So it's both sort of surprising and inevitable. Uh, at some level, when we get to the end, we, we know how the winner will win and what strengths they will draw on and why, because it's all set out in clues throughout the story. That scene with the lancing of the lids is foreshadowed by the opponent having been in a similar situation earlier in his career. So we see the characters measuring up and becoming better distinguished. Even the landscape with that soft depression speaks of the final winning action, the caving of a skull. This helps the ending to deliver at many levels. There's a final massive release of built up tension. So the ending feels like an epiphany for the reader too. There's a work I'd recommend for anyone wanting to better understand how to build tension. And that's Robert McKee's story. It's, it's focused on screenplay, but it translates directly to short fiction. Brilliant. I think short stories and drama have a lot in common. And I agree absolutely with what you're saying about the ending. And I want to come back to that because it seems to me 
that a lesser writer might have had a different ending, interestingly enough. So, um, but I wanted to ask, do you think this short story is about masculinity at some level? The fighters are heroes and stars. They have huge fan clubs. They've pollinated many girls. And there's a contrast going on with the dandy who seems to be living in a dream of masculinity. And the dandy seems to me to be the despicable character. Yeah, there's definitely something, yeah, could be read into that. I wondered if um, there are also socioeconomical or political aspects to that, because the men fighting seem to have been brutalised by their circumstances. And I suppose that could be read as being expressed in a particular manifestation of masculinity. There's a lot of anger there. Yes, but also on page 17, the former priest says to Jacob, anger will only take you so far. And I think this leads to the crux of the story, to the shift in perspective that comes at the end, and which is really the reason why I chose this story. We both like the last story in the collection very much, but in that story, the reader's response to the character is less complex. Here, I think the ending makes all the difference. I believe a lesser writer would have had the alternative ending to the fight. I don't want to specify that would be a spoiler because then the story would have been a sentimental one with a more obvious, slightly cliched point that here there is a masterly shift in perspective to the closing scene and that brilliant last line that essentially changes how we read the story, I think. Also, the last line of section 16 is particularly brilliant. And we're prepared for this by the disquisition on page 13, which is a discussion in layman's language of one of the great unanswered questions about nature and nurture. Sin man, sin world, good man, good world. Oh, I love this because I didn't get nature and nurture at all. I'd love to hear more on this. This maybe relates to what you were saying earlier about uh, pressing issues. So this may be one of the pressing issues that emerged for you. Yeah, I think so. I think it's one of the great questions that goes back in human history and theories of it change. They've changed in the course of my lifetime. Whether we think a character is the way they are because of their environment or because of genetics, nature versus nurture. And... In the end, while it looks as though Jacob Burke is being set up and exploited, it's made clear, I think partly because of that scene in which we see him stoning a little boy when he's a child, that there is great joy for him in fighting and in violence. And there is something in him that is kind of a lethal or a killing instinct that people around him notice and they seek to exploit it so I think it's a new way of presenting that incredibly old question yeah it's a question that spans centuries yes that's right I mean I think you came up with other questions and I think this is also true there is there is more than one question in the text so what were you saying about the the protagonist with a quest yeah, I suppose I got something different. I wasn't entirely sure that Burke had been set up to fail. I felt that that was where how he was perceiving things at one point. Mm. I wasn't sure whether or not that was the way things were, how reliable he was as a narrator. Well, he's not exactly narrating, but yeah, I wasn't well, maybe sure. that's true. I think he goes through that feeling very strongly, as you would do, that he suddenly fears that he will fail, that he won't come out of this alive. 
And the crowd are, of course, indifferent to that. They just want blood. Yes. Yeah, that was quite terrifying, wasn't it? That this yeah, <laughs> animalistic aspect, it relates to everybody or humans. Yes. There's a tendency to want to see a monster rather than a man. But I suppose we're obliged to see that the monster is in all of us through the story. Yeah, I think that I think that's absolutely right. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, and I didn't actually get a change in perspective. For me, it felt more like um, a classic character arc. So, as you say, with the protagonist who has a, a quest, I got a call to action when he was spotted as a boxer. And then the fellows who will accompany the hero appearing in the form of, of Yankee and Ken, the antagonist in the form of the opponent, the, um, the mentor in the form of the wise old priest. And that double dip I mentioned in a previous podcast where the protagonist seems to fall back before coming back stronger. And in this case, with his motivation clarified, I got that the protagonist Burke wants glory. So glory from doing what he was made to do, like the heroes he sees framed on the walls. And as you say, this word joy keeps coming up. His Burke just loves to box. It's where he finds his bliss. At a deeper level, I thought the story might be read as the journey of any sports person or creative. There are the hardships and sacrifices of subjecting yourself to the discipline you love through training, of course, but also by making a more interior journey, wrestling with motivation, because any insincerity there sets you off your path. So you need to know not just what you want, but also why. And eventually the training and motivation come together in a moment of action. This oneness with the discipline becomes possible. The disciple has earned their moment of grace. I suppose this might be called flow for writers. You become what you do, losing and finding yourself in that. And victory is not just winning, but also a kind of self-fulfillment. I think we feel that in that, that moment you mentioned where time seems to sort of lift. And there's a oneness between the action, Burke, Blindman, and even the crowd. I think that's such an interesting parallel between the creative person and the fighter, the sports person. And there are parallels in Eastern philosophy. I'm thinking particularly of Japan and a particular approach to martial arts there, which includes keiko, practice, renshu, training, shuren, discipline, tanren, forging, kufu and shugyo, where shugyo is the deepest spiritual training possible. Fire, water and iron involved in refining the sword. The structures of the mind emerge from the unconscious in shugyo and it passes the barriers of the ego. You mentioned this once in a workshop you were giving and it completely blew my mind. I found it hugely helpful. Such a brilliant way of conceiving of an artist's journey. Thank you. So it's basically about mastery, physical, spiritual and creative. And this story is definitely an example of that. But in terms of the shift in perspective, we move to an increasingly internal perspective from Burke rather than on him. So on page 27, Burke, up on his knees, thinks, here we go. This is not the externalised commentary of his early career and his vicissitudes that we get on page six, where you've got this external narrator. It's still third person, but somehow it's an internal focus. And that's how you get his visionary memory of stoning a little boy as a child. No sports commentator would have known that. This is his internal experience. And that's where we get the debate between nurture and nature again, I think. But I do think that the overall effect is that he becomes one with the action, not simply the exploited object. And that too is the meaning of Shugyo, which does seem applicable to this story. Death of the pugilist or the famous battle of Jacob Burke and Blind Man McGraw. And just to repeat, this is the first story in the collection, A Registry of My Passage Upon the Earth. 
published by Mantle, which is an imprint of Pan Macmillan in 2020. And it's a virtuoso performance. I do hope you read it. So once again, thank you for listening to this Small Pleasures podcast. And do keep your eyes and ears open for our next. Watch this space. We have many great short stories to cover. Until then, goodbye from me and Sonia. A bientôt.